This is Purple Hall. Welcome to Preble Hall, a podcast about naval history from the United States Naval Academy Museum in Annapolis. Our guest today is Caroline Johnson. She is a 2009 graduate of the United States Naval Academy and served as an F.A. 18 weapons systems officer in the U.S. Navy. During her deployment aboard the USS George H.W. Bush aircraft carrier, she flew missions in Afghanistan, Iraq, and Syria, and was one of the first women to neutralize ISIS. Later during her Navy career, Caroline became a senior leadership instructor at the United States Naval Academy. She is currently a business development director in the private sector. Her book is Jet Girl, My Life in War, Peace, and the Cockpit of the Navy's Most Lethal Aircraft, the F.A. 18 Super Hornet. It was released last month, November 2019, by St. Martin's Press. Caroline, welcome to Preble Hall. Claude, thank you so much for having me. <laughs> welcome I'm back, I should to be here. Say. Yeah. Who are the Jet Girls? Who are the Jet Girls? So in the F-18 community, when I was flying, there were very few women. So we made up 1.7% of the population. And so really the Jet Girls were my closest friends and were this incredibly powerful group of women. There were about 12 of us on the East Coast at that time. And we kind of rallied together and supported each other through thick and thin and through the ups and downs of, of a career at the tip of the spear. 1.7% is... How tra- traditionally, what's it been? That th- that was as high as it had gotten at that point, and now we're up to three point six percent. So we're growing exponentially every year. Is what? What's the reason for the growth? Is that because more women are entering this particular field? I think it's increased recruitment and retention within the force. And so the key to getting greater numbers within the ranks is mentorship, sponsorship, and getting people to rise up throughout their naval careers. And then once you get people in the door, showing them, number one, that they can be successful, and number two, that it's it, it's the best job in the entire world, and getting them to stay and continue that service long term. So we had at the Naval Academy Museum an exhibit a few years ago now. It was called Ability Not Gender, and it commemorated the 40th anniversary of women coming to the Naval Academy, uh, to the U.S. Military Academy at West Point Air Force, uh, which started in 1976 was the first year that women were admitted to the academies. Did you have women mentors here or in the fleet? I did. Yeah, I did have some women. And actually, there's one that promoted. She's now a two-star admiral. She was incredible. Um, It was tough. There were not as many, not at the senior levels when I was in there flying. You know, one or two rising up in the ranks. We had seen them on the show Carrier, and then one in the fleet training squadron, um, one going through flight school. So one or two here or there. But Actually, what was more beneficial for me was having male mentors that were senior and very high up who understood the ins and outs and were able to not only mentor, but also sponsor and help bring me up in my career. What are the differences in the way that uh, men and women have mentored some of the young female pilots or NFOs? Oh, I mean, they're vast and they're not different at all. You know, there's there's such differing ends of the spectrum. I think so much more depends on the specific personality of the person. And so in as we all know, in every mentoring relationship, you get different kind of nuggets of wisdom from each different type of person. But I do think it's important to have the diverse mentor, mentorship experience, diversity of background um, and, and gender and all that different kind of stuff, because you can learn these differing perspectives and um, 
that's how you really develop yourself and and build kind of your quiver of leadership and ability to to rise up so I you know I don't know what the right answer is on that so whether it's outside inside because now I'm on the outside right I transitioned out this past January and I actually still mentor as many if not more young people coming up in the ranks than I did when I was in both men and women men and women I actually mentor more men than I do women at this point when you're when you're mentoring them or when you received uh, mentoring from some of the senior women was there something unique about uh, what they were taking from the in terms of of gender was it gender specific or were was it just mentoring generally some of the times it was gender specific in that I would get from the women and you get a much more being a hyper minority and and having very few women in the community some of the senior women always felt like they had to make me better and make me perform at a higher level. And I got a more intense focus on me, I felt like, than some of the men. And so when I was mentoring the women, I always tried not to do that Mm -hmm. and tried to teach more from a level of understanding and saying, hey, um, you know, these were challenges for me. I don't see that being an issue for you, but here's maybe something to look out for instead of zooming in and focusing. So one example was when I was going through flight training, I have a very high-pitched voice actually. And that in the cockpit and on the ground can be very difficult to hear in some situations. And so I had one flight instructor come to me and she we got out of the simulator. I was with another guy in the sim and she came to me and said, you know, you're never going to be successful in this career path. And I go, excuse me, I, I thought the sim went very well. And she goes, no, well, yeah, that was great. But your voice is horrible. It's like nails on a chalkboard and it's much too high pitched. And I go, oh, okay, well, that's something. And so, you know, instead of saying, hey, a technique for lowering your voice is speaking from your diaphragm and really trying, you know, this is why the radio can't pick it up. But so learning from those experiences and learning that, you know, some of these issues that are perceived issues by same gendered people are not necessarily issues that need to be addressed. And but so there's no need to be hypercritical of somebody, you know, whether they're men or women based on these biases. So is this mostly just common sense then? A a leader is a leader. A leader is a leader, but, and there are some differences, but I think it more has to do, we piloted when I was here at the Naval Academy, a gender and leadership Knowles course, which is national outdoor leadership, to really investigate the differences between men and women leaders. Is there a difference based on gender or does it have to do more with motivators, behaviors, and and leadership traits? And and we really discovered the latter, that it had to do with more personality traits, behavioral differences, motivators. And so that was what was important. And so removing a lot of that unconscious bias from just the gendered roles and and forming the conversation that way and trying to drive it and educate people on their biases because we all have them and the biggest part is overcoming that and that's what removes those barriers and makes these elite combat fields that still have very low percentages of women so seals rangers you know green berets fighter pilots aviation in general um, those are things we need to be talking about on the human factor side of it. Those those low numbers, is that simply because those fields have only recently opened up and 
women just don't know what is available to them in the military or or has the word gotten out like yeah here are here are all of your options that's a great question so the fighter community in combat aviation and combat roles were opened up in 1994 so 25 years ago so we have been fully integrated since then i think one reason for the low numbers of women is it's a stereotypically uh male role. It's not been, you know, the gender stereotype is has always been male and traditionally so that way. So, you know, a lot of women don't inherently want to join these fields because they've never seen anyone be successful in it. So that's number one, you have to see people who look like you, sound like you, and who you can relate to that are successful. Number two is is telling people. And, and so that's what I'm out there doing now with Jet Girl is I'm out in the public eye being able to say, it doesn't matter if you grew up, you know, not knowing anything about flying fighter jets. If you're good at math, if you're good at science, and and if you want to do it, any of these career paths are open to you. You just have to, you know, harness your inner strength and, and go for it. And so I was the perfect example of that. I had no idea these careers existed. You were my history teacher when I was a, a plebe here at the academy. And and even at that point, I was like, well, I, I'm not, I can't fly fighter jets. And all the way through, you kind of realize in the book, like, it wasn't even in my thought process because I didn't know it existed. And I didn't think that as this girly girl, like I was capable of it. And then I got into it and fell in love with it and realized that talent doesn't look one certain way. I could still be myself and be purely Caroline, but also be this warrior who had literally fire at her fingertips. Is that the reason you wrote the book? Yes. And that is what it all came from. I I never wanted to write a book. Um, I was actually pursued by my co-author and agent because they were so fascinated that women flew fighter jets. They're completely civilian through and through, and initially they came in, didn't know women could do it, and they said, you've got to write your story out. And I said, no, this is common. Everyone does it, you know? And then they were like, no, they really don't, and we need to show the next generation. And and that's what got me on board, and I haven't looked back since, and the reception's been great. Is that because so few people, you think, um, have any relationship with the military? We have a... a historically low uh, portion of the population who have served in the military or who have military family members because we're at an all-volunteer force these days. We have been for some time. Uh, is it Were they intrigued because it was so foreign? And have you found this in your, you know, you've been on a pretty lengthy book tour now for the past month. You've been on Fox and Friends, you've been on CBS This Morning, a few others. Yep, so I did the Today Show, Fox and Friends, a special on Fox Nation, MSNBC with Ali Velshi, Good Day New York, and then all the local media outlets. Um, And I've been in New York, Philadelphia, Connecticut, Los Angeles, Beverly Hills, Colorado. I've been all over, West Palm Beach, and then Harvard uh, most recently. And so it, it has been fascinating to get out in the private sector and to be talking to wildly diverse groups of people so from tech to wall street to uh, the news media and it is number one education because there are so few what is it less than one percent is currently on active duty and so then you look at the amount of people that that touches immediate families and so and they a lot of times don't even know because these elite communities are so small even within the military, the fighter community is such a very small portion of the military um, that people on the outside don't understand. And and within these elite communities, 
we don't tend to share the story on the outside, the amount of work and training and education that it takes to get there. And then once you get to those elite levels, what it takes to stay there. And so due to operational security and and privacy concerns, we tend to be extremely private, silent professionals. And and so writing Jet Girl felt totally, you know, counter to that. And so initially it was really, really hard. It's like, well, I got to keep this secret. But the, the key is if we don't share, if we don't expose people to, to the amazing career paths that exist out of the Naval Academy and in these worlds, people don't know. And ignorance is not bliss. Ignorance is not anything that should be, you know, prided. You want to be able to, to share because that's how you motivate people and the talent and the brightest and and the best to really join these career fields and that's hopefully what jet girl can do is is say hey not only are there men out there doing this but women are too and and this is how i got there here's some of the challenges that i encountered we're changing those and making it better so that the next generations have it better than us and are able to fight our battles abroad yeah i I think you hit on a really good point about um, exposing certain parts of the military or all parts i guess about 10 years ago, there was a, a an excellent series on PBS called Carrier, and you'd mentioned it earlier. And that, I think, really opened up a, a lot of minds in the American public who watched that series about what life is really like at sea, especially on an aircraft carrier, because they didn't just show the jets taken off, you know, a la Top Gun. Uh, they showed everybody, you know, the sailors who were responsible. There were two sailors who were responsible for, you know, trash uh, compacting, I think it was. But it showed every portion of it and what it really takes to to move those those carriers across the oceans. What's what's been the takeaway for especially the corporate community that you've spoken to about lessons you've learned not only from the Naval Academy but from your time in the Navy? So I think the number one actually that you kind of just brought up was that teamwork in that on an aircraft carrier and in the military and the Navy, there are five thousand people whose sole goal is to put ordnance downrange on target on time. And sure, as the weapon systems officer, I was the last person who would touch those weapons before they neutralized the enemy. But it, stepping back, it took the two people in the trash room and, and that teamwork and everyone's specific roles and that you know, how we all work together as a cohesive unit, it takes the front office and the back office. And really highlighting that about the Navy and this high-level mission that we fight, and then translating that to the private sector and helping people understand that, yes, you might be the paper pusher's assistant who gets the mail, you know, but you have a very important role. And so that teamwork has been something that they've just latched onto and said this is great we want to learn and so that's brought up in the book and we talk about my sailors and how they're 18 years old and and out there and working 12-hour days and so that's been super cool to tell that story and I know that the sailors have reached out to me and said hey thank you for sharing what our job is and bringing us up to that level you know we feel like such a team so that's been cool but also it's been wonderful to acknowledge the authenticity and the very 
real people that are in the Navy. So much of the time on the outside, the civilian population sees the military as lockstep, in parade formation, eyes in the boat, this military complex. And it becomes very intimidating to them, and they don't want to ask questions, and they they worry that they don't want to offend the military and this, that, and the other thing. But at the end of the day, we're just people. And that's the coolest part is we're brilliant people. And the the squadron mates that I flew with and the sailors that worked for me, they had such depth and character. And that's, I feel, is the strongest part of Jet Girl is it shares that. We're multidimensional. We have families. We have normal life struggles. And that makes it relatable and a fun story for people to get into and really kind of helps them understand that, yes, we're real people doing extraordinary things and the end goal and the end thing we achieve is protecting our country and the the type of life we lead was that because you got you're pretty honest in the book um was that tough in the writing process yeah some of the portions that are really personal yeah probably why it took four four and a half years to get out and i will say the first couple drafts came out of very lockstep you know buttoned up military because I had, number one, personally locked a lot of those things away and said, you know, I don't like people to see me sweat. I only like people to see the good. And and you're in such a competitive environment, you don't want to show weakness because they'll pick that apart. And so opening that back up and being honest and, and being authentic was very difficult. But I think it's so important because in life, everyone struggles. And in the military, I struggled and I failed. And it's important to acknowledge that so that you can grow, you know, after the fact. And it shows, right, it shows a very human aspect to people who go out every day on deployment. Um, And that's, that's across whether it's male or female pilots, or, you know, sailors or whomever. Yep, correct. Tell me about your first deployment. My first and only deployment. <laughs> we'll see. Um, yeah, so we left on February 14th, 2014, Valentine's Day. No date that night. So that was going really well in my life. Um, we didn't expect it to be a historic deployment. We really expected at that time we were doing the drawdown in Afghanistan, turning over control to the Afghan people to to protect themselves from the Taliban. And so we expected it to be, you know, pardon the term, but very mundane, non-kinetic. We weren't going to do anything extreme, just stabilize. And sure enough, we got over to the Mediterranean and intercepted the Russians. So they had pulled out with the Kuznetsov aircraft carrier. Um, And so we interacted with them for the first time in 10 years. And then from there, we went over and did Afghanistan operations. And we supported the first elections, free elections in Afghanistan, which was very historic. And it was incredible. And we were... How do you do that from a jet? Yeah, great question. So we were... Oh, goodness. (laughs) Misspeaks all over the place today. So we were tasked by the POTUS, so President of the United States, uh, to provide overhead air support over every polling station in country. And so that meant that we would drop down low enough to provide a noise signature overhead so that the Taliban enemy on the ground, they would know that there were fighter jets poised Mm -hmm. in case they decided to... uh, 
do an attack on any of the polling stations. And that was highly successful. For a fighter jet, you have to understand when we operate over enemy territory, we like to stay high. Number one, because no one can shoot at us. Their missiles can't get that high. And number two, to preserve gas. In a fighter jet, gas is life. And when you drop down very low like that, you burn through gas at a very high rate. And so that was actually a mildly dynamic mission for us, but it was hugely important sitting down there. And so those went, they went well, but they had to do a second election. Um, So we supported the second round of elections. And that was actually a very historic day for us because that's when we got called off station. And so we got a call from the, the Air Force controller that said, you know, Hellcat, you need to return to the ship at this time. And literally mind boggling call. It doesn't sound like it's, you know, really poignant, but that said, get back to the carrier, which to have an 18-year-old Air Force combat controller call you and tell you that when you're in an $80 million, very rare, never happened. My commanding officer had been flying, I think at that point for 18 years. He had never heard that call. And so we followed the orders, proceeded south. And when we got down to the North Indian Ocean, the aircraft carrier was almost 100 miles west of where she should have been. And so we knew immediately something was going on. And so we landed before we had even parked, the aircraft carrier flight deck heaved and we turned west. And we pushed through the Straits of Hormuz that night on very short notice, which is unusual. It's a tough seaway to keep open. And we were into Iraq the next day. And so the very senior most people flew in, CAG, which is the carrier air group commander, all the commanding officers, without any rules. And they went in, and the Iraqi controllers, they were briefed, but they also didn't know we were coming in. And at that point, it was historic because we were the only show in town. Navy... Whenever an emergency happens anywhere in the world, there's a crisis. The president says, where are my aircraft carriers? And we all know this, aircraft carriers with her air wing on board can be anywhere in the world within 24 hours behind enemy lines. And what's important that a lot of civilians don't understand is that, you know, a U.S. aircraft carrier is sovereign territory, so you don't need country authorizations to take off and enter another country. And so no kidding on that first day, we were the only show in town on the fighter side. And so, you know, we can go over the comms there in the book, but it was a fascinating experience. I was not in country that day because I was much too junior, Mm -hmm. but my job was as a tanker. We sat on the border of Iraq in case something happened. They ran out of gas, something went wrong. We were tasked to go in and bring bring our troops home. So, um, fascinating. It was like sitting, you know, when you're a little kid and your parents tell you to go to bed, you're sitting on the stairs listening to the TV and the conversation. That's how it was, which is, you know, not what I expected to be doing at the age of 27, but um, was an incredible experience. How long were you on station there? So in Iraq, we got there June 14th, 2014, and we chopped out on October 18th, 2014. Um, We were on station From June 14th to August 8th, sitting overhead, observing, collecting reconnaissance and intelligence data on ISIS before we had made the decision to go kinetic. So President Obama on August 8th authorized the first employments against ISIS, um, but that was after almost two full months of collecting data during the summer and watching these ISIL or ISIS terrorists. Um, It was 
their utter disregard for human life and killing innocent civilians on the ground was really tough to watch. And that's what we were doing day in and day out. It was, you know, trying to protect the innocent people on the ground, but we had to do so via non-kinetic means, staying up very high because they did have weapons at that point Mm -hmm. that they could employ on us. And so... Being there and and seeing that in real life and and seeing, you know, Iraq and Afghanistan are such two vastly different places. They're fascinating. Everyone over here thinks, oh, they're in the Middle East. Or when you're on a ship, you're like, okay, I know I'm supporting. Um, And we've got tomahawks going in. But Afghanistan is what you see in the movies. The super severe, intense mountains and snow and the caves. And you can imagine the Taliban living in there with their, you know, poppy tea and and the fires and all that kind of stuff well iraq is very cosmopolitan it's very much populated and it's a city baghdad is beautiful it's like washington dc and no kidding sitting overhead i would imagine the people in dc and you'd look at the green zone and the you know ambassadorial housing and all that kind of stuff and and so to imagine that there were these terrorists lurking within the country um, and then to start to see it see buildings blown out see them drive down the middle of a village and just machine gun spray out homes storefronts with people in them was was something that you know I'll never forget it's so impactful you know and, and it hits you so deep down makes you realize why we're there why we're out in these countries trying to protect our way of life back at home so that they don't come over I mean, this was really part of history. I mean, when you guys were operating it there, right? Absolutely. So ISIL, ISIS was brand new. It, you know, didn't exist. We, I think we had known about it for a few years and we had held off from going into Iraq. And when we came back in, it was unbelievable how they had already taken hold and were taking Mosul and were taking just step by step, taking over these villages, pushing the Yazidis out and persecuting innocent civilians. And and it was incredible. It was the Wild West because the ROE, the rules of engagement, didn't exist from our first time in Iraq. So we had to rewrite the rule books. So every day we would fly in and execute a mission. We would come up with the procedures and, hey, whether it was flying in at 21,000 feet, in through Kuwait, you know, out through Iraq, basic infrastructure that we lacked from previously, our air wing from the from the bush, it was uh, CAG-8 is what we were with, air wing 8, Um, we were rewriting these rules and working with our Air Force counterparts once they were allowed in and establishing just from base rules up and and getting all this infrastructure in place so that the war that we're still fighting today could go on. And then from there, we had the first strikes against ISIS. So my squadron executed the first strikes on August 8th. Um, The next day, August 9th, I... It was the first woman to neutralize ISIS from an F-18. And then we executed the first strikes into Syria, which were Navy-led strikes into Syria. Our CAG, which Carrier Air Group Commander, he led the strikes, and we led a coalition force in. We worked with Tomahawks. We had Air Force F-22s integrated. And it was fascinating to execute these long-range strikes that we had practiced and prepared and talked about for years and years. But to really have that full integration was was something our admiral had been I think flying for 32 years at that point and he's like I've been waiting my entire career to do this Dutch and I'm, I'm going wow it just that mat like 
the magnitude of the situation was not lost on me. And it's like, how historic is this? In 2014, you don't realize that this is literally making history. You did once the news crews got out there. We had nonstop uh, major news networks. How quickly did they get there? Fast. Um, They were with us, I think, all summer. We spent a term of 72 days at sea uh, that summer, which is, we all know, the Navy, it gets bad. (laughs) Yeah, we get beer day on day 40. So 72 days was a long time. No, uh, no, no fly days. Um, But they were constantly Mm -hmm. on the ship trying to record, trying to get the latest breaking news, which was interesting. Were you all under any restrictions in speaking with the media or was that pretty tightly controlled? It was very tightly controlled. It was really interesting. They would try to get at us. The The public affairs team did a great job kind of wrapping their arms around the situation and, and escorting them. What was fascinating as a woman, kind of bringing these two conversations together, there were three women on the aircraft carrier who flew F-18. So one single seat pilot and then two weapon systems officers like myself. So me and, a, and another woman. And the media would see us and they would see our names on the jets and they would come just beeline straight for us and and always ask to talk to the women, uh, which are going, I, you what know, kind of questions I don't, would they ask? I don't. We were never allowed to talk to them, oh. which was interesting The our our admiral and our CAG. I will commend them. They were really good about protecting our identities, which in the end I really appreciated because when we came back from deployment, we had a lot of backlash and psychological warfare in that ISIS created a top 100 kill list Mm -hmm. and anyone who had been interviewed by the news media was on this kill list. And so luckily that kept us off of that, which coming home is difficult enough coming back from combat. um, But also having that threat looming out there and just being focused on like that, keeping us out of the spotlight was actually the right, very much the right decision. When you wrote the book, you discuss some of these operations. Did you have to run it by Department of the Navy first? Was there What was the approval process? Oh, absolutely. So number one, we were very careful about including classified information, numbers. We all know that the intelligence game is like a jigsaw puzzle and everyone's just trying to get one or two pieces here and there so it's very important to you know keep loose lips sink ships i guess is what our saying is so that's still very much alive in my head um it went through the full dod pentagon approval process went out to every cocom that we operated in and got full approval it took seven full months for the dod to approve it um and they redacted four words within the book when we got it back and i actually got rave reviews from the pentagon the head of uh i guess all news media approvals um he's a west point 78 grad and provided some incredible feedback for me that was really positive so what sort of lessons did you learn from the naval academy that you took to your time on active duty I became the woman I was during my time at the Naval Academy. And it took me from being a young, naive 18-year-old girl who, you know, probably had some mixed priorities sometimes. I probably had a little bit more fun in town when I should have been doing homework. It really helped me understand what was important and helped me reveal what my core values were and and how I wanted to project myself and, and the kind of warrior that I wanted to be. And so what was that? Number one importance was authenticity and integrity 
for me in that I wanted people to be able to trust every move that I made because I realized the magnitude of my decisions going through, you know, whether it was a small decision in flight school of very basic attention to detail, that became hugely important for me because, you know, success is in the details and especially in aviation because a small mistake when those small mistakes line up you know we call it the swiss cheese model when the when the holes in the swiss cheese line up and is when something bad happens and that really was ingrained in me at the naval academy number two the leadership aspect of it and the people and and people are your most important resource and carrying that through with me into the fleet and understanding that if you took care of people's most basic needs like I learned at the Naval Academy they would go to the end of the world for you can you give an example of that from your time at the Academy yeah so my senior year first year I was the battalion operations officer and so I was in charge of all the operations within our battalion so what there's I don't know six battalions so however many students um, and ensuring that you know I had a team of of my five battalion operate or company operations officers and their needs sometimes superseded the needs of the team so when I was at the academy was the first time I really understood people and understood people on a deeper level and and failure. So not only the academy takes these very, very high-performing high school kids or pre-enlisted fleet sailors, and, and you're very successful at everything. And number one, it brings you in and plebeer teaches you how to fail. And, and hopefully fail gracefully, but a lot of the times, you know, it wasn't that way for me. But it, it taught me that not only could I fail, but other people could fail. And when you do fail, the way you react to that and deal with it um, is is huge. And so it taught me when I got to the fleet, you know, not only was I going to trip up again and fail, but other people would. And how you react to that and take care of them in the aftermath or make sure that they, they bounce back and have small successes after that um, was huge. And, you know, whether it was one of my best friends getting kicked out of the Naval Academy for uh, violating a, a conduct regulation or failing my chemistry test, just basic stuff. But it happens time and time again. And you learn how to how to take that failure, move on and then get better from it. I don't know if that fully captures it, but I think it's those small life lessons that kind of build up over time. And the Naval Academy, by being such a pressure cooker of four years at such a pivotal time in people's lives, is that's what creates, you know, kind of this character and the grit that you carry on. When you go on your book tour, you now you do speaking mm-hmm. uh, engagements across the country, mostly to corporate entities and, and other folks. What are the, some of the questions that they ask you about either the academy or the Navy? So one thing that is very surprising for them is the level of preparation, education, and training that goes into creating a warrior. And so a fascinating fact is from the day I started at the Naval Academy, June 29th, 2005, to the day I actually executed my job in combat, August 9th, 2014, was nine years, one month, and 10 days. And that was all training leading up to that point. Yes, I was doing my job, serving my country, doing the, everything to the best of my abilities. 
but it was all training and they don't realize that a full undergrad education goes in it, into it. Six to $11 million in flight training goes into it and they don't realize the moral, mental, and physical preparation. And so talking to them about it, they all understand education and going to college and going to the Ivy Leagues and working hard. But they don't understand that you're all out there at 5.30 in the morning running around the yard or you've got all that these other military five obligations. basic responses. Yes, sir. No, sir. Aye, aye, sir. I'll find out, sir. And sir, no excuse, sir. And, and I think the ownership that the academy teaches you and the moral grit and that... And the, the physical aspects of it is what really separates us from the rest of society. And people don't understand that in aviation, you think of the Marines and Navy SEALs being super physically intense. But you don't realize that in aviation, number one, at the academy, only 60% of these classes qualify physically to go into aviation, whether it's your anthropomorphic measurements or, you know. Because you can't be too, too short or too tall because of the restrictions of of the cockpit, right? Your femur length can't be too short, can't be too long. Your sitting reach length of turning the knobs on the dials in the aircraft, it's a very specific measurement. And it's amazing that even though you're physically qualified to serve, a lot of people aren't qualified for aviation. And then once you get down to flight school, the physical tests ramp up. So what kind of physical tests do they do for the for uh, the aviators as compared to, say, SWOs or Intel or anybody so else? So water survival training. So naval aviation is plan for the best, prepare for the worst. So you practice ejecting out of your aircraft. And then once you eject, you parachute down into the pool and you have to get rid of your canopy uh, so it doesn't drown you. Then once you do that, the helicopter will come and pick you up, hoist you up, get you strapped into the helicopter. And then the helicopter crashes because they're having a bad day. So it's the worst of the worst of the worst. Well, when the helicopter crashes, it always flips violently. And so the way they simulate that is they strap you and eight of your classmates into the shell of a helicopter. And they lift you up about three meters up and then release it free fall. When the helicopter shell hits the water, it flips violently in the water and you're flipped upside down. So your job is to punch out the windows, release your five point harness and swim out with nine of your classmates. Oh, and then another bad day, your, your life vest doesn't auto inflate. So then you have to manually blow that up. You do that three times and the last time is blindfolded. And so, you know, just telling it is is not that scary, but just go on YouTube and look up the helicopter dunker. That is one of these challenges in, in flight training that is just, it seems insurmountable. You go, no kidding, you are crazy. I'm not doing that, you're crazy. And they go, you're crazy, you're doing it, otherwise you can't move on in training. And so those type of things, survival school, two weeks of going through prisoner of war camp and going through the resistance process of, of interrogations and being beat up in through the woods. school. Yep, so you do that, you do a myriad of other physical trainings, the centrifuge training, which is anti, you're resisting G-forces, so they spin you up. It's like the movie The Right Stuff, where they put them in the spin and puke, is what they call it. Um, we do that. All, all real fun, you know, exercises that you get to do to build you up physically. How often do you have to go through physicals for, for the aviation community? So you do a flight physical once a year. And then if you have any medical issues, say a sinus infection and you can't go fly, you have to do, you know, get another up chit, do another physical after that. And, and they're very, very strict 
on what medications you can take. But if you are concerned, you know, there are a few no-goes. So for example, color blindness is something that's tough to get past, but there are waivers. So if you do have questions, definitely look into it, check into it, but you don't want to close yourself off, but it is also still very strict. So taking care of yourself is important. Now, previously you and I discussed some of your experiences giving talks and they're these little girls usually at the end of every talk. What it, what would you tell them if they, I mean, they've, they're fascinated by the fact that you were in this community yeah. and that a lot of women are now in the community as well. What do you tell them? Dream big. Go for it. Go for it. If you think it's the coolest thing ever or if you've ever wondered, I wonder if I could do that too. You know what? Put your mind to it and put yourself out there because the worst thing that could ever happen is somebody tells you no. And when they tell you no, you give it another try and you keep going. Because even if you never thought it was possible or you hadn't even thought about it, there are these things out there. There are these careers out there that you can do that are just so rewarding and so meaningful and you can create so much impact with it. And there is no one telling you that you can't do it. And so the time is now. Every option is open to anyone. And that's what's so cool. This These next generations coming up, they've been raised with that. They've grown up with that attitude. And so like, keep going for it. Yes, you have to study hard. Yes, you're going to have to sacrifice and go to the Naval Academy and give up your weekends, but it's all worth it in the end. Like those little small things that kind of scared me along the way, that going, I'm not sure if I want to do that. It, looking back in hindsight, 2020 was... 200% worth it. I had experiences at the Naval Academy and in the Navy that I would never have any other opportunity to do. And and it's so special now that I'm out there and you know, I have I have traders who talk to me on Wall Street and they're trading billions of dollars. They're just making more money than God move. And they're like, "You had the coolest job ever." And I'm like, "You know what? Yes, I did." <laughs> and I am so thankful for that experience. And so in writing Jet Girl, I wanted to expose other people to that um, and just bring them into this amazing Naval Academy family and and really military family. I think it's so cool. Caroline, thank you very much. I really appreciate it. Uh, Ladies and gentlemen, thanks for joining us again for Preble Hall. Have a great day. Preble Hall is in no way intended to reflect the official positions of the Department of the Navy or the Naval Academy.